Hello, this is Liv Peterson from Starting Up Now. Thanks for joining us today on KMNP Shift. In this podcast, I have the opportunity to interview L. Brian Jenkins, author of No More Nonprofits Moving from Dependency to Sustainability. In this episode, we will navigate the differences between social enterprise and business ownership. We will discuss the question, does the black community need social enterprise or traditional business? Take a listen and hope you enjoy KMNP Shift. Um, In the beginning of this chapter, Brian, you talk about your experience with purchasing a home and uh, the title says relocation gone wrong. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about this experience? Sure, yeah. Years ago, uh, my wife and I purchased our first and only house that we're actually still in. I remember we were part of a church in um, in an organization ministry that required its staff, of which my wife was one for a period of time of several years, they required the the staff to live in the community. One of the things that, that really struck me was that when it came time for us to buy our own home, if my wife had stayed with that particular ministry at the time, we would have been strongly encouraged and actually required to buy and live in North Lawndale. Mm. Um, initially, I thought that was a great idea, except that some friends and I, you know, they were also in the process were interested in buying into a community that's just to the west of Chicago called Oak Park, which is famous for their Frank Lloyd Wright houses. But this particular organization really pushed us to, you know, to stay in the neighborhood. But at the same time, I was looking at, wow, you know, it costs X amount of dollars. I think we paid around $95,000 for our house. And so we ended up buying in Chicago, but in the Austin community. However, my friends who chose to move to Oak Park, they ended up paying about $135,000, you know, for their house. You know, Oak Park, you know, is a very nice kind of charming community, depending on where you're at, multiracial, uh, multicultural. And so one of the things that happened was, you know, later on when I lost my job, they had a higher level of equity available to them in their house than I did. But the thing that they didn't talk to me about from the ministry standpoint was the variances in the equity and what the equity would allow you to do. And it turns out that we weren't the only ones. It turns out also that many of the white families that had bought in the North Lawndale community, they also owned other property outside of North Lawndale. So North Lawndale might have been their primary residence. They oftentimes had other properties that no one ever knew about. And so I was sitting there thinking, man, why doesn't that ever get told? You know, that you are, yes, you are, you relocated your family here, but great. But guess what? We got this summer home over here that you didn't even know about. This might be your primary residence. We have other residences that I was never told about. And let alone the equity differences. In Oak Park, I think our house, you know, let's just say right now, might be worth about two hundred thousand, just for sake of argument. So, for example, my friends who bought in Oak Park, their house appreciated almost worth four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and their purchase price was one hundred and thirty-five thousand. My purchase price was ninety-five thousand, and our house might be worth maybe two hundred thousand. When I lost my job and, you know, the husband lost his job, they have far more equity to support their job loss, their lifestyle, their education for their kids than we had. Those were the types of things that 
when you're launching a business, whether it be a for-profit or a non-profit or, or social enterprise, you need to know the whole deal. There's been a rise in social enterprise. I think that social enterprise is here. It's, um, it lends itself opportunities other than just creating revenue. But I begin to ask myself and ask others, you know, I actually did a survey and said, does the black community need social enterprise or do we need enterprise? I think we surveyed maybe about, I think about 100, I think we got about 60 or 70 different responses back. By far, it was enterprise. You know, social is good, but at the same time, the black community has always been doing social enterprise through churches, through ministries, through mosques, through picnics. That's what we've known. We've always been social. In the urban context, we need enterprise. Those things that have been intentionally denied, relationships that have been withheld, funding that has been redirected, we need that enterprise to take place, particularly on the west and south sides of Chicago, but I'm sure in every other urban context in the U.S., but also, I'm sure, beyond the U.S. as well. I always say to my friends who have means, you cannot, I have not seen a community in America change itself without a tax base. We have a plethora of nonprofits in communities that are distressed. And at the same time, there's fewer nonprofits in communities of affluence and influence. But what we need is basically tax-bearing businesses to help turn around communities. And that's what took place, you know, in Chicago. It was after the riots when many of the steel companies and other, you know, major manufacturing companies moved out of Chicago and created a permanent underclass. It was not because people wanted to live that way. The industries left and the communities, the people that were there were not as mobile to just move out. And therefore, you have a job loss, which impacts family, which impacts your educational system. So then a lot of decay begins to take place. So these communities were often trapped, you know, because they didn't have the ability to have that other house or that other location that they could go to. Therefore, we needed, you know, in order for us to create stability, particularly economic stability, we need to have enterprise and we need to have tax bearing businesses that can actually generate not only revenue for the business, but also revenue for generations. Most wealth is passed down from one generation to the next generation. If we want to solve the problem, of generational wealth and economic instability, we need to own our own and involve others to help do that. And you talk about ownership, you talk about um, economic stability in the Black community and how oftentimes these Black ministries are kind of led into operating into models that don't work for them or expected like you were to, hey, you need to purchase your home here in order to work at this ministry. And that wasn't beneficial or wasn't helpful. Mm -hmm. In this chapter, you speak on black ministries that often operate in those models. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you've mentioned to me before about Saul's armor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Saul's armor is a straight biblical reference. And and most of us know the story of uh, David and Goliath. And what the backstory is, is that uh, before David goes out and kills Goliath, Saul, who was the king of Israel at the time, told David, hey, if you want to go out and fight and defeat Goliath, you're going to need some armor. And so David puts Saul's armor on and he's trying to move in it and it's cumbersome. It's, you know, armor was custom fitted usually for the person. So he's got, it's like wearing somebody else's clothes almost that aren't designed for you. 
And so here David is, is trying to figure out how he's going to fight Saul, but he can't move in his armor, you know. And so he tells King Saul, he says, hey, you know, I know how to fight Goliath on my own terms. So he takes his armor off and we know the story. He goes out there and he kills Goliath with the weapons that he knows, his slingshot. Many ministries oftentimes require black or, or Latinx organizations to take on armor or models that were never meant for them. The model of deputization is based on you having access to those who have access to resources. Why take on a model that was never meant for you that's basically relationship-based and revenue-driven? Many ministries, just simply because they can raise money, does not mean they're most effective. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the challenges. I think ministries need to be given the freedom, or nonprofits need to be able to be given the freedom to leverage and use the tools and the tactics that they know, not those that were never meant for them. So deputization, in my opinion, fundraising are cultural institutions that are used by uh, white people um, to raise money for their cause or their ministry. But that's not that's not culturally conducive to black led organizations because of the history of this country, which is very important, has led to the lack of financial resources being available to black and brown led organizations as well. So that history is very important, but we do not need to wear Saul's armor. Let's learn, let's strip that armor off. What have we always been able to do? We've always have been innovators. We always have overcome our circumstances, but we do not need to, you know, use methods and methods, you know, methods and, and tactics that are not conducive for us to win. Basically the laws on the, at the Supreme Court level, so many laws, have been focused on black instability, intentional instability. Again, we need intentional investment. Therefore, we don't need to follow methodologies that were never meant for those that are here. That model has never worked for me. What's worked for me was owning and being able to, to provide a product or service in the marketplace as a nonprofit. Most nonprofits are never taught that. And when I speak at different locations and events and all that, I ask for a show of hands, you know, it's particularly in the urban context amongst leaders, nonprofit and church-based, you know, I'll ask, how many of you ever taught to read a 990 and understand not only what the 990 is, what it says, you know, that's part of your strategy. They were never taught this because we've been using methods and models that weren't ours. At the end of this chapter, you say most urban ministries I'm connected with in Chicago, like you said, economic principles, financial literacy, or entrepreneurship training into their day-to-day -day instructional plans. Mm -hmm. The very communities that need the training the most are the least likely to receive enterprise or entrepreneurship training. Why is this? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just to kind of reiterate what you said is what you're doing with Entrenuity is so unique and so different because you are creating that culture of ownership, that culture that you control the capital, that culture that you are moving and existing and flowing outside of the model and kind mm -hmm. of bringing to light and bringing to attention a new model, right. a new uh, sustainability mm -hmm. that can be integrated into communities of color. And then also, I think 
that need to be at large even taught to white-led ministries right. that they need right. to be operating within this model as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's an excellent observation. One thing that's come out of this is this new model called Level Up. And Level Up is a model that's a direct reaction from the funders and investors that have contacted me and said, Brian, we did not realize until I wrote No More the different challenges that Black, Brown, and Latinx women-led ministries are going through because they were not aware. And so Level Up is basically, it's kind of like a workshop, but it's, it's turning into something else as well, is, is where they're asking to say, you know, I did not realize that these ministries that I primarily give that are white-led only give to white organizations. And they're not even aware of the other ministries and churches and networks and nonprofits that already exist in that community. No, because because the ministries that they usually write the checks to don't connect them. Randy, you know, my admin extraordinaire, um, who she asked me, Brian, what would have happened if you would have got those connections that you now have earlier? At the end of the one of the chapters in the book, I think it was one of the last chapter, you know, what would have happened? I think we would have saved almost 17 years because we would have been given the opportunity to launch, you know, to launch strong and launch well. And I'm not saying what we went through to get to this point isn't effective. It's been immensely effective. I wouldn't change anything. But if we would have had the same opportunities that others have had to get their organization off the ground, I'm sure we would have done it a lot faster. We would have been we would have done it with much more efficiency and we could have had a greater level of impact. A glaring example to me is a, a another organization I know was able to raise money for a coffee shop. We purchased our coffee shop late 2017, operated in 2018. We purchased that with cash that we had generated from some fee-based services, uh, donor support, and that's the way we had our startup capital. We, the, you know, fortunately, the previous owners um, allowed us to pay the balance um, over the next 12 months, and we operated. Another organization in town I'm aware of, they raised their money to open their coffee shop by a lot of donors literally showing up, the executive director telling a great story about this coffee shop and what it was going to do, and people wrote checks, and they were able to launch. Well, that shop today is no longer in operation because just because you're able to raise funds does not mean you're the best at running and operating a business. Many ministries and many businesses have gone under because they do not function from sound business principles. Mm -hmm. And what I say is this, as you begin to look and think through levels of sustainability, make sure you do not confuse the two. Sometimes you'll have a leader who is really a nonprofit leader that really should not even touch the business side of things. You have to have solid and good people around you that can help make up for your deficiencies. And the minute that we begin to think that we can do everything on our own, we will fail, you know. And I've had my failures just the same as anybody else has. So I'm speaking from a place of experience. Thanks again for joining us today on KMNP Shift, where we discuss the unseen and unspoken barriers you must overcome to do your job. We are always happy to hear from you, so please reach out to us at www.entrenuity.com. Interested in booking a workshop on this content? Email us at info at 
Follow us on all social media channels at Entrenuity. And don't forget to grab a copy of your book, No More Nonprofits Moving from Dependency to Sustainability, available on Amazon. Until next time, this is your host, Liv Peterson with KMNP Shift.